Hello, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. Oh, Jane, how are you? I'm sad. My I just found out that my roommate had to put one of her dogs down. Oh. He was he had a very large tumor and he was having seizures because of it and they just he needed we needed to make him comfortable, you know? Yeah. It sounds like it was the right place, but that's still sad. It's always hard to lose a dog. Yeah. But rest in peace, yes, Bobby. Yeah. Bobby rest the rat in peace, terrier. Bobby. He's a rat terrier, right? It really sounds like we're Linda from Bob's Burgers. He was a rat terrier. Bobby. <laughs> Bobby. <laughs> well, Bob's, Bob Belcher's <laughs> tombstone is going to say order up. I don't think that's what Bobby's would say. Oh, no. But yeah, that's how I'm doing. How are you, Sarah? <laughs> I'm good. Remember, good vibes only. Um, Yesterday... <laughs> no, I'm trying to only say good things. Not that Bobby dying is a good vibe, but that like I am trying to only bring up good things because uh-huh, uh-huh. everything's a trash fire right now. The number of things that <laughs> happen in a week between us recording is astounding. Like I can't even begin to cover it. <laughs> also, so on I have two things to say. One on friday i celebrated our friend jenna's birthday with her we had like a big gathering in a park it was really really nice i got to see a lot of our friends which I, who i haven't seen in person in forever our friend alan cracked me up he was like sarah you exist in physical form because <laughs> we've only seen each other <laughs> over 3d over um over zoom. zoom for like six months now and he was like you're a three-dimensional human and i was like i know i haven't phased away into the computer but while we were there i found out so the night the friday morning when the news came out that trump has covid i had gone to bed early like of all the nights right because it dropped like (laughs) midnight friday morning but i went to bed at like nine o'clock because i get up at 6 a.m now and so i go to bed and unbeknownst to me, a lot of stuff happens while I'm asleep. And of course, I wake up. And I'm like, of all the nights to miss the action. But Aaron told me <laughs> at that party, our good friend Aaron, he was on the podcast. He covered memes. Um, he told me about the video of Melania that came out that was in the news for a total of one hour. Because an hour later, after this video was leaked, Trump had COVID. Do you know about this video? No. It's her saying, so she's talking about, like, the kids at the border, and this is an old video, and I don't know, I I don't know how this all came together or what was going on in the initial video, but essentially she says in the video, fuck those kids and fuck Christmas. (gasps) And then she was, like, she was singing the video, like, nobody cared when Obama did it, and this whole video leaked, and it didn't matter at all. I mean, I think I I saw, like, a headline somewhere that someone was talking about her saying horrible things, but I thought it was just someone who knew her, like, reporting on it. No. Like, this ratting her out. Fully I didn't know there was a video. Oh, this photo, nuts. This video was fully leaked to the world, and it didn't matter because an hour later, Trump had COVID, and that completely dominated the news. But isn't that wild? Jeez. And all that happened since we last... I'm sure there was other stuff. Like, the debate happened. So much happened. Anyway, my good vibes this week is that yesterday I did a daring thing. And I drove 45 minutes to Staten Island because (laughs) this week or over the weekend on Friday... ColourPop released their Hocus Pocus collection. And Hocus Pocus <laughs> is one of my favorite movies. Like, top five. Like, so good. Just, like, yeah. cream of the crop. And I was so, so excited. Good. And apparently the rest of the world was excited because it sold out in 12 minutes. The whole collection. But ColourPop was like, not to worry. It's going to be released in select Ulta stores. So I'm like, I do my research. And I'm like, okay... Hopefully, there's there's two Altas on Staten Island. There's a there's one in Brooklyn, and then there's a couple in Manhattan. The easiest one for me to get to is the one on Staten Island. So I was like, okay, Sunday when it launches, I will, I will look on the Alta website if it's in stock. And of course, it launches on the Alta website midnight Sunday. Again, sells out in like ten minutes. People are thirsty for this collection. And I'm just desperate for good things. And I want the collection, but the collection features like fake eyelashes, which I never wear. Um, and like eyeliners, which are cool, but I'm not a huge eyeliner person. Like I have my 
I have my Kesha eyeliners and they do the trick. So I was mostly like, I want the lipsticks and I want the eyeshadow palette because that's the stuff I use. And if I got the face glitter, that would be fun too. But I mostly was like, I want the eyeshadow palette because I love ColourPop's eyeshadow palettes. They are my favorite eyeshadow palettes. I have many. Um, and this one, I was like, that's the goal is the eyeshadow yeah. palette. Cream of the crop. And if I get the lipsticks, great. So I go, I drive. Sunday morning to Staten Island. Ulta opens at 11. I get there at 10.40. Mm -hmm. Like a fool. I don't get out of the car. I wait in the car. And then all of a sudden the line starts forming and I run and I'm fourth in line. I could have been first. Could have been first, but I was fourth. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's okay. It's okay. So You're we're all lady. waiting. A huge line builds up. In the last 10 minutes where the store is open, <gasps> there's like 15 people in line. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is an Ulta. You know, like they gotta have they gotta have a stock, right? They have to have like a good number. I'm thinking like thirty. Like I I think ColourPop probably distributed about thirty of everything to the store. You think that makes sense, right? I'm like, that makes sense. I know they said limited edition, but like they had to have known this would be popular. This is one of the most popular Disney movies. It has like a cult following. Yeah. Also it's last time they had a collection that was like big at Ulta, I went to look for it and like I, I I remember not being able to find it on the shelf, and I asked a staff member about it, and they like laughed at my face. They <laughs> they were like, ah, "What we was the collection?" It was one of the Disney ones. I don't think it was the villains one, but I think it was the like second. Oh, the masquerade um, one. The masquerade one. They were like, huh, "Yeah," as if we like. So they know <laughs> Disney collections go. Well, it's <laughs> like, and it's and like ColourPop has done other limited like Sophia's lipstick collections yeah. about. Um, which I love. Like, and I love ColourPop's products. And also, they're, like, reasonably priced. So it's super frustrating that people bought up the Hocus Pocus collection, which you could buy the whole collection for $130. That's, like, 12 separate items. Which, for 12 separate items, is pretty good. And of the eyeshadow palettes, $22. Like, that's a reasonable price for an eyeshadow palette. That, I, in my opinion, is really high quality. Um, and people are reselling the eyeshadow palette for $80. They bought up the collection. They're selling for $400. Like, it's nuts. And it's so frustrating because it's not like it's Dior. Like, it's ColourPop. So I'm sitting there <laughs> thinking, like, okay, I bet that they have, like, 30 in stock. Like, that makes sense. I'm fourth in line. I'm going to be fine. They open the doors. The girl, two in front of, two people in front of me works at the store. So she starts, I follow her. I'm like, I'm just going to go with you because you probably know where it is. The display is so small, and when we get inside, it's already half gone, which to me says that the staff at Ulta had already bought the collection before they opened the door, which was frustrating in itself. <laughs> but there is only, literally, there was like six eyeshadow palettes and three of Sarah and Winnie's lipstick. I didn't see any of Mary's. I don't think they had it. So <laughs> everyone, this was like a moment for me. I grabbed the, I was fourth in line. And I kind of, like, scooted around people because we were all standing around this little display. And I just, like, kind of reached my hand. And I got the last two lipsticks. I didn't get Mary's. I only got Winnie's and Sarah's. And I got the second-to-last eyeshadow palette. I felt so bad for the people behind me. But I also was, like, you know, I put in as much effort as you did. <laughs> like, I'm going to take these. It was, you deserved it. It was crazy. I was, it was hard because I don't think I would deserve it any more than anybody else. But I did get in line first. You put in so. the work is my point. Like, I got in line, you know? I'm not going to be... And the girl in front of me was like, I feel bad, and then grabbed it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you got here first. So that was my victory this week. I'm wearing the eyeshadow palette right now. I really love the look I did this morning. It's kind of melted away at this point. And I love the lipsticks, and I don't regret it at all. Um, but that was my that was my weekend victory. I'm so, I'm so excited you could get it. Can you send me a picture of it? I could probably Google it. <laughs> you could. It's very pretty. <laughs> It's all like earthy tones. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. A lot of pretty, a lot of pretty greens and mauves, mm -hmm. which is exciting. So I love a mauve. I do too. Have you seen the guy on TikTok? This is my other source of joy. There's a guy on TikTok who I, think is I know trying, what you're going to talk about. He tries to guess the paint color. Yes, yeah. <laughs> He's like, so he he, he duets people that work at like a Home Depot when they do the <laughs> color mixing and he watches the quantities of red, blue, and uh, yellow that go into the pot and like yeah. the, the white and black 
and he starts guessing the colors and he's like give me a win give me a win I need this one and he puts his background <laughs> as like the color he thinks it's gonna be it's the best it's like and it's he's just... like he has an accent and it's like yeah <laughs> oh what what did I watch recently he said the funniest thing it was like I I don't even remember, but he was just like, oh, come on. I need, th- he's Australian. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm not this- doing it right. He's like, I need this win. Like, it's so This game fun. is addicting. What is it going to be? <laughs> like, he's like, every video, he's like, I can't keep doing this to myself, but I can't look away. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so good. Um, So that's some free serotonin, if you want to look that up. That it guy really guessing is. the paint colors. It's mm-hmm. so enthralling. I think that's all my news. Do you want to get started? Sure. Okay. All right. This is going to be Jane Gets Serious. Oh. For the episode. <laughs> okay. I'm a serious lady discussing a serious topic. Okay. I'm just going to. Also, get, get sometimes serious. when I do my notes, like I literally will type out. So it's basically like, or like, mm, so in other words, um, so <laughs> I won't type um, but I do. <laughs> sometimes I'm not so sure. <laughs> Excuse me. Last episode was bad, though. I will. It was say. really bad. I'm so sorry. You can re-listen to the episode because I didn't fix it <laughs> that much. No. Because no. I was like, I don't have the time for this. I don't have the energy. I, I heard myself doing it, and I was like, this is terrible. But I I don't know how to fix it. But this time, like a couple of bullet points I wrote, I was like, what am I writing? A paper? Anyway, <laughs> here we good. go. This could be your next paper for school. Um, if H.P. Lovecraft were ever to come up in my grad program, which I'm not sure he will. Mm. But you asked me to talk about H.P. Lovecraft and how we know he's racist. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is really because he said so. Um, that's the long and the short of it. Uh- <laughs> I knew that he said so. I wanted you to tell me how. But don't worry, that wasn't, that's not my full presentation. Uh, No, H.P. Lovecraft, born 1890, died 1937, was an American writer of weird and horror fiction, most known for the creation of what would become the Cthulhu mythos. Hmm. He's considered a mastermind who brought madness and existential dread to new heights. His mythologies have been an influence for Ridley Scott, Stephen King, Guillermo del Toro, Joss Whedon, and many others. Mm Mm-hmm. His, story, his stories have been rigorously dissected in academic schools in subject, subjects ranging from speculative realism and object-oriented philosophy to post-humanism and human-animal studies. Oh. I'm assuming they mean, like, anthropology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lovecraftian references are abound in pop culture, especially in video games, but they also exist in television, such as South Park, heavy metal lyrics, and one website mentioned that it is referenced uh, heavily often in pornography and in sex toys. So, I I don't know anything about that. I didn't, I chose not to look deeper into that. You know, if y'all want to, go for it. But uh, he's also a man who made no effort to conceal his bigotry and racism within his work. He published many remarks which expressed his worldview, which um, contained many disparaging remarks against anyone who wasn't white and Anglo-Saxon. He makes it clear that he believes in a hierarchy of races, and within race, he further separates people with classism and elitism. Specifically, he esteems white people with British ancestry who are knowledgeable of, quote, high culture. He published letters of his opinions, many of which were heavily anti-Semitic. He talks about a conspiracy theory he believed in, about an underground group of Jewish people who were pitting the economic, social, and literary worlds of New York City against the, quote, Aryan race. He warned, quote, oh, okay, also, like, up front, I'm just going to put, like, kind of a trigger warning that there's, like, some hate speech in here. Like, all of it is quotes, and I'm not going to say or anything like that. Yeah, he warns of, quote, the Jew who must be muzzled because he insidiously degrades and orientalizes the robust Aryan civilization. And he was a big fan of Hitler. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. He was an American? Yes. Okay. He lived in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he said, quote, Hitler's vision is romantic and immature. I know he's a clown, but God, I like the boy. Which is, you know, not not a great stance to have on Hitler. No. In 1912, he published the poem entitled On the Creation of the N-Words, which is about the gods having just designed man and beast, creating black people as a semi-human form, which populates the space in between. In response to mm. white terrorism against black people in Alabama and Mississippi, he said, quote, Resorting to extra legal measures, such as lynching and intimidation, because the legal machinery does not sufficiently protect them. So basically, in other words, he didn't approve of lynching and, you know, white terrorism, but he said, like, well, we have to do something to protect ourselves. Jeez. Just disgusting. Yikes, that's awful. Yeah. It is very easy to say that he was a product of his time and that racism and bigotry were more culturally accepted in the early 1900s, but what we can control is our discussions of him and his work in the present. So Lovecraft is often framed as an otherwise great man with this tiny flaw of racism that we can disregard and forgive. But let's take into account some things in our modern time. For example, let's discuss the Howard Award. Okay. In 1975, there was the first annual World Fantasy Convention. Mm -hmm. This is a, conven a convention of professionals, collectors, and others who are interested in the field of fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, every year... Now, every time I hear, my say, uh, hear myself say, um, I'm like, come on, you said you were going to be professional this week. <laughs> every year, they give out a set of awards for the best fantasy fiction published during the previous calendar year. Uh -huh. The awards currently given out are best novel, best novella, best short story, best collection, best anthology, best artist, and a convention award for contributions to the fantasy fantasy genre mm -hmm. and a life achievement award for outstanding service to fantasy yes sometimes there are other special awards that are given out uh, but those are not given out annually in part because the first convention was held in hp lovecraft's hometown of providence rhode island and also in part because he was considered such a titan of the genre the statue that was given out with the award is a was a caricatured bust of H.P. Lovecraft. And also because of that, the award was nicknamed the Howard Award. Mm. There was one small controversy surrounding the trophy in 1984 when Donald Wandre was offered a Life Achievement Award, which he refused to accept because he had personally known H.P. Lovecraft and he didn't like the caricature of him that was on the bust he thought it was demeaning so they had to give the award to someone else because um that guy was like i won't take it which honestly it was like fine then we won't give you a literary award if you're <laughs> such good friends right with this. <laughs> but the bigger and more important controversy surrounding the statue began in the early 2010s when the con when the convention was um, slowly attracting protesters who objected to using the statue of a racist as the symbol for a literary award. Mm -hmm. In 2011, award recipient um, Nnedi Okorafor and China Mieville said that they felt conflicted about being honored with the bust of a man who hated people of color. Several authors asked for the trophy to be changed. In 2014, author Daniel Jose Older started a petition which was ultimately successful. In 2015, they decided to change the statue, and now the award that is given out as of 2016 is a, it's like a spooky-looking tree with a full moon behind it to honor the spookiness of the fantasy genre. Hmm, that's cool. I know, it looks cool. I was like, that's kind of dope. I kind of want that in my room. Obviously, like, <laughs> not, not a real one. Like, I'm not going to win a, an award for my fantasy literature anytime soon, but... You could. <laughs> said anytime soon okay maybe next year when i have more time yeah next year next year that's a good <laughs> year that's I'll a good plan together. i love long-term plans yeah i'll pull it together so the entire argument um is really because we need to be more sensitive to authors of color mm -hmm. so imagine if uh 
we had a black award recipient and we chose to honor them for their writing by giving them a statue of a man who said, quote, the N-word is fundamentally the biological inferior of all white and even Mongolian races. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. Nettie Okorafor, who was the first Black person ever to win a World Fantasy Award for Best Novel, said this about the situation. Quote, a statuette of this racist man's head is in my home. A statuette of this racist man's head is one of my greatest honors as a writer. Like, that sucks. Yeah, that's awful. In 2016, as I already said, they remodeled the statue to a full moon behind a tree, but not without the kicking and screaming of Lovecraft defenders. Prominent Lovecraft scholar S.T. Joshi, um, who, by the way, is not white. He's of Indian descent. Mm -hmm. So I don't, you feel like you might be more sympathetic, but, you know, they're not monoliths. He was one of the people who were most upset at the decision. In fact, he had been previously granted an award and he returned it out of anger. Which is so stupid because that's the bust he wanted to keep. Like he wanted it to be that symbol, but he's like, now I don't even want this anymore. Like you'd think he'd think of it as like a limited edition, but no. That's ridiculous. I know. He said, one, the award acknowledged Lovecraft's literary greatness, which says nothing about the person or character. And two, it suggests that Lovecraft's racism is so heinous, a character flaw, that it negates the entirety of his literary achievements. Opponents of this argument say that the statue was not a piece of his writing or a reference to the elements in his literary works, but rather a statue of the man himself. If it weren't, if that weren't the case, it would be an entirely different argument. It would be like one thing if it was an image that was like a reference to one of his stories or I don't know, a picture of one of his books, but no, it's a picture of his face. So we're literally talking about the man himself, not his, his written work. Right. It's also kind of telling the way that this guy is pitting the racism against the literature. To quote lithub.com, which is where I got a lot of this information because I read an amazing article from there. Uh, quote, he tries to save the latter by separating it from the former, but the need to, quote, save a man dubbed horror stories dark and broke prince by Stephen King is itself questionable. His legacy is firmly planted. His cosmology sprawls from popular culture to niche corners of scholasticism. Complaints of a potentially tarnished reputation are more concerned with bolstering the illusion of Lovecraft as a sacrosanct figure. That was the, mm. that's the SAT word right there. Even further, to divorce his racism from his literary creations would be a pyrrhic... What word is that supposed to be? I wrote civity, but I don't think that was the case. No. Uh, are, are you, you okay? That? No. Weird. Okay. Oh, even further, to divorce his racism from his literary creations would be a pyrrhic victory. What results is a whitewashed portrait of a profound writer. So in 1927, Lovecraft was quoted to say, Now all my tales are based on the fundamental premise that common human laws and interests and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large. One must forget that such things as organic life, good and evil, love and hate, and all attributes of a negligible and temporary race called mankind have any existence at all. In other words, his stories are super nihilistic and argue that no human is important. So people who try and defend Lovecraft often say that he's not saying that white lives matter and other lives don't. He's saying all lives don't matter. (laughs) That's a new take. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, you can't be, he's not racist. He's just, you know, super dark and doesn't think anybody matters. Um, However, uh, in his writing, The Age of Lovecraft, Jed Mayer argues that, quote, the mingling of horror and recognition that accompanies the encounter with the non-human other is one that vitally, that is vitally shaped by Lovecraft's racism. So basically, all of Lovecraft's writing are heavily influenced by this great fear of, like, scary things in the outer cosmos that are coming to get us. And it's, like, sort of this idea of a pure world that's coming and is threatened by an other, which, you know, it's not hard to interpret what that means. Mm-hmm. 
his most his agreed upon most bigoted piece of writing is called The Horror at Red Hook, which is about a troubled Irish detective in Brooklyn who comes across, quote, hordes of prowlers with sin-spitted faces who mix their venom and perpetuate obscene terrors. They live within a maze of hybrid squalor near an ancient waterfront. Now, I will say mm-hmm. that reading some of these quotes, I was like, oh, this man can really spin a phrase. Like, he's he's really good at putting, like, words together to make, like, he's a good writer, you know? So reading it sounds like he's he's painting this evil abyss populated by beasts from the Necronomicon, but what he's really describing is a Brooklyn neighborhood right off of the pier populated by Syrian, Spanish, and Italian immigrants as well as African Americans. Uh, the story is filled with anti-immigration values and black people and immigrants are framed as bringers of chaos in American law and order. The story was written about Lovecraft's time living in Brooklyn from 1924 to 1926, which was a time of shifting demographics and a great migration of black people from the South to the Med- Midwest and the North, including New York City. Um, in one letter, Lovecraft describes living in Brooklyn at this time as being, quote, imprisoned in a nightmare. And his wife, Sonia, recounted that whenever they were walking around New York and they stumbled upon groups of people of color, quote, he would become livid and with anger and rage. So Mm -hmm. this book is literally him, like, putting his racist views on paper. So there's no way to be like, well, he might have been racist, but his work is still good because his work is literally built on racism. It's built, it's made of racism. LitHub.com appropriately and relevantly concludes its article by drawing a parallel between Lovecraft and Darren Wilson. Do you remember who Darren Wilson is? That name sounds so familiar. He was the police officer who murdered Michael Brown. Yes, um, yes. Which was the killing that spurred the protests in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. When he took to the stand, uh, he described Michael Brown, who was an 18-year-old boy that he murdered, um, like this. Quote, I've never seen anybody look like that. For lack of a better word, crazy. That's the only way I can describe it. He looked like a demon. That's how angry he looked. According to Wilson's telling of the events, even his firepower, his firepower couldn't stop Michael Brown. At this point, it looked like he was almost bulking up to run through the shot. When it went into him, the demeanor on his face went blank. The aggression was gone. It was gone, I mean. I knew he stopped. The threat was stopped. So here's a modern day example of a person who is racist painting black people as monsters and using that to get away with their racism. Um, This is a quote from the Lit Hub article. It should come as no surprise that a racist imagination imagination possesses an uncanny ability to concoct the most outlandish, outlandish and fiendish representations of minorities and immigrants pre-existing social hierarchies and political forces give those depictions life and validity. So in conclusion, to separate Lovecraft's racism from his literature is fundamentally impossible because his literature is what it is because of his racism. It shouldn't be ignored and any homages to his work should be aware of its origins and we should be vigilant as a society to notice those who try and use similar methods to vilify marginalized groups in their writing or in public statements, be it thematic, symbolic, or literal. I heed my time. Or what's that phrase? <laughs> I rest my case? I, no. What, what do you say in a debate when you're, you've said all you need to say before the time runs out? Oh, um, I, it's like I relinquish my time. Yeah. Um, acquiesce Um, yeah but anyway i mean like i said when i was reading a lot of these quotes from lovecraft it's clear that he's good with the written he's like excellent with the english language he creates these like vivid pictures and he uses really lush vocabulary um so it's definitely like we can still if you want to make the argument of separating art from artist i think we can still be like well he was a really good writer and mm-hmm. he is, his influence has um, gone on to create works from, as I said today, Ridley Scott and Guillermo del Toro and Stephen King. Like, he has, is a titan in the horror genre. But we cannot talk about H.P. Lovecraft without knowing 
the like embedded racism in his work it's just it's throughout his work and he is the writer that he is because of it mm-hmm. or was this has left me with some things to think about mm-hmm. well also you might know a lot more like i didn't mention a lot all of the names that i saw in my writing but i while i was researching this i was like ah i bet sarah knows all of these people <laughs> i was looking through as you were talking um Stephen King's list of accolades because I was trying to remember if he's won the World Fantasy Award. I don't. He might have won once, but he's been nominated like literally every year or every other year (laughs) since 1970. Uh, (laughs) So I was trying to be like, oh, he must have won, and I couldn't figure out because there was just so much to look at. But I was like, ah, couldn't figure out. It was like a chart with a bunch of other awards, not just those that he's won or been nominated for. But he's nominated all the time. Um, well, now I want to go to World Fantasy Con. That sounds fun. But, you know, 2020 probably won't be happening anytime soon. No, probably not. <laughs> Just shut it all down. Um, <laughs> no conventions. In person, at least. No, I was, I, I just, like, this always leaves me a lot to think about because, as Jade mentioned, I am a great fan of horror. I read mm-hmm. a good amount of horror, but I have to say it's, like, almost entirely limited to Stephen King because... Like, I love Stephen King's books, and I find them highly entertaining, and I do want to try to read them all, which is a big feat. Um, So, essentially, the way I read books is I read one non-Stephen King book, and then I read a Stephen King book, and then I just alternate, (laughs) um, which will take me through the rest of my life. But I'm also, like, I really appreciate the works of Neil Gaiman um, amongst, Mm -hmm. amongst others. Those are probably the two. Stephen King, I would say, is the only, like, strictly horror author I read. I read a lot of mystery thrillers, too. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I do know that Stephen King has been enormously influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, mm-hmm. And in, enormously inspired by him. And Stephen King is not a perfect writer. Um, he has, there's definitely racism in his books. Um, he is, like, essentially the founder of the Magical Negro. He created the most famous Magical Negro of all time. So, like, I- I'm aware mm-hmm. of his problems. And in the last 10 years-ish, he's, like, become a much more woke person, which has been really interesting mm-hmm. to look at. And, like, I've read, yes, I've read, like, it. I read The Stand, you know, the OGs. But I also have read his his more recent books. Like, I'm reading his collection, his most recent collection of short stories right now. And it is really interesting to see, like, the differences in how he portrays diverse characters. Um, mm-hmm. And so much of what he makes gets adapted into movies and television shows. Like, there's so much out there that you wouldn't even realize Stephen King did. And it's just everywhere. Um, And I was reading this article just the other day, even, talking about how, like, even in places where he did not create magical Negroes, the adaptations of his shows are creating them, which I find really, really fascinating. Like, for example, the show The Outsider was on HBO this year, got a lot of accolades, Cynthia Revo stars in it. Essentially, her character in the book The Outsider was a white woman, um, and they made her a black character, and she has what in the steven universe in the steven universe in the steven king universe (laughs) you could call like the shine or whatever like she has magical abilities so this show created a magical negro where one didn't exist and so it's interesting that even though he's not writing these magical negro characters it's so embedded in our like steven king lore that like adaptations of his books are creating magical Negroes, so it's, it's really interesting. So it's cool to hear about, it's interesting to hear about H.P. Lovecraft, because, like, he has had such an enormous influence on the entire horror community and the whole horror genre and how we think about horror that I think, like, really seeps through and it still has a big effect on us today when we create and write horror movies. I mean, there is that trope of horror movies that the Black character always dies first. You know? Mm-hmm. The big thing. And I'm sure it's related. So anyway, that's my that's my thoughts on that. Yeah. Anyway, everybody go watch Lovecraft Country. It's on HBO now. Apparently, it's amazing. It was produced by Jordan Peele. It's about black actors retaking the like Lovecraftian characters and fighting them themselves. It's really interesting. I was literally just gonna bring up Jordan Peele, and I was saying like it is possible for us to for the horror genre to move forward. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jordan Peele is a really good example of a director that is doing that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah. So, I'm also on the middle segment. Now, I brought two options for you. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Choose your own adventure? 
choose your own adventure. We can talk about, um, I have a couple of thoughts jotted down about, you know, the members of cabinet who have tested positive. Oh, okay. Or we can talk about life on Mar- on Venus. <laughs> oh no, we're pushing I did, life I didn't on know Venus which, again. I, I didn't know which tone, well I didn't really, I mean, you know, I think I told you pretty much my summation of what's going on there all um, right so let's talk about the cabinet members with covid even though life on venus okay wow, sounds wow. sounds like a sounds like a good plan i will say what i did last time and it's literally just that there's a chemical on, on that they just discovered on venus that they thought only organic life could create however this chemical only exists in the clouds on venus so if there is life on venus it's like little microorganisms in the clouds which if let's that's go live not in the clouds to on you, venus <laughs> into it uh that sounds like a nice little retreat oh what if we were like in a bubble like in stepsister from planet weird oh, what i have no idea what that reference is it's a decom all right well no wonder i don't get it all right okay so here is a list of everyone that within donald trump's cabinet who has tested positive for covid19 one donald trump two melania trump hope hicks White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany, his assistant <laughs> Nicholas Luna, <laughs> no laughing. Sorry, I just hate her. <laughs> um, Senator Mike Lee, Senator Thomas Tillis, Senator Ron Johnson, former Counselor Kelly Conway, or Kellyanne Conway, excuse me, um, Principal Assistant Press Secretary Chad Gilmartin, which if your name is Chad, Maybe change that because that's a that's a broy name. Um, Assistant Press Secretary Caroline Leave. I was about to make more fun of him, but you know he has COVID, so maybe I shouldn't. Um, no, no, him, no, no, no. He I don't make know. fun of us. He made fun of us. Because the thing is that they're, they're like you can't make fun of them. They have COVID. They they bully people all of the time. The GOP, all they do is bully people. You're right. All they do is bully people. I'm not sitting here being like. <laughs> he can't breathe properly. But, like, you know, like, yeah. I honestly, I think they had this coming based off of their behavior. Of course they got COVID. Of course. Of course. There is no I, shock. <laughs> there is none. I saw a meme today that was, like, the GOP a week ago, and it was, like, them being, like, you liberal dummies, like, who cares? Like, With your masks. Who cares if Two two hundred and ten thousand people are dead. Like it is what it is. Put away your liberal tears. And then it's like today, what happened to the tolerant left? Why are you guys being mean to us? Like literally, it's, you guys are. It's oh, true. More people on the list are Assistant Press Secretary um, Caroline Leavitt, Campaign Manager Bill Stepien, and RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, as well as former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Mm-hmm. Now, what I wrote down here is, do we want these people to be sick? No, I don't want anybody to be sick. In my ideal world, COVID would have never been a problem, you know? It wouldn't have been something that affected our world, our country, and then by extension, our government. Might this situation have been avoided if the pandemic were handled better? Yes. Mm-hmm. That would have yeah. prevented this and the deaths of 210,000 Americans. Yeah. These individuals are privileged enough that they will receive the best health care money can buy. Uh, they will be treated incredibly well. And even though, like, Trump is older and in all of the risk groups because he doesn't take care of himself, mm-hmm. uh, he still, like, is going to have the best doctors and the best treatment. And... Honestly, at this point, him choosing to leave the hospital before his uh, remdesivir course or remdesivir course is finished is like kind of a an fu to the people around. Like he doesn't care if he spreads this. It's a. It's just. It's <sighs> just reckless. Um, but their health is not as high a concern as the average COVID victim because they have access to such high quality healthcare. What somebody that we should be concerned about that I. I'm not saying much of this, but someone posted this on Facebook and I thought, wow, I wanted to mention it. We should really be considering the Capitol Hill maintenance custodial and food service workers who are all of great exposure risk and 
the same risk as all of the powerful people and they have less attention focused on them and their needs and they have less resources at their disposal to protect themselves from the virus and to stop themselves from becoming spreaders. So that's just a little food for thought. We should be able to treat the lowest people working in that um, off in that in business. I don't know what I can call it. You know, that system, that government as we do the highest, you know, this is why like equality of healthcare is good for everybody. It is. It's good for everyone. So my topic is very different. My topic is all fun and games. Well, okay. There's going to be a, a very serious part in the middle, but the rest of it's very, very fun. Serious. The rest okay. of it's fun. Today we are talking about a great German tradition, Oktoberfest. And here's my beer. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> I've got a prop. Actually, this isn't a beer. I'm a liar. This is a cider, which is not allowed at Oktoberfest, and we're going to talk about why. Oh. But I don't have a regular beer, and I already drank all... I actually do have a fest beer. I had one, but I drank it yesterday. Poor planning. So, happy October. Oktoberfest is the world's largest Volksfest, which is a German tradition of of a traveling beer festival and fun fair. Volkfests have been going on for a very, very, very long time. Oktoberfest is held annually in Munich in the state of Bavaria in Germany. The festival lasts 16 to 18 days in mid-September to the first Sunday in October. If you didn't know this about Germany, Germany is divided into states, kind of like America. Um, or like provinces, kind of like Canada, with very similar vibes there. Okay. Uh-huh. And I've been to Bavaria, been to Munich. I loved it. It was one of my favorite places I visited when I studied abroad. And the people of Bavaria, this isn't specific to Germany. I think this is a Bavaria-specific thing. Feel a lot <laughs> more passionate about being Bavarian than they do necessarily about being German. Like okay. Bavaria is very pride. They have a lot of pride about it. Um, it's very fun. I like, kind of get it, you know, because I, I would I would say I have more pride of being a Mainer than I do of being an American at this yeah. time in the... <laughs> yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so when you go, to, like, if you meet someone from Bavaria, they probably would say, oh, I'm Bavarian, before they would say I'm German. I mean, if they didn't, mm-hmm. I mean, they if you didn't know that Bavaria was in Germany, they'd be like, yeah, I'm German. But if you started talking to them about mm-hmm. Bavaria, they'd be like, oh my god. It's a really big deal. And that idea that, like, they're Bavarian first is really central to Oktoberfest. Okay. Um, I, I loved Bavaria. I didn't go to Berlin. Berlin is, like, very industrial. And, like, obviously that's where the Berlin Wall was. And it was really the center of communism for a very long time. Um, but Munich is, like, when you think of German Germany and you think of, like, the pretzels and, like, the hodunky sort of Germany, <laughs> that's Bavaria. It's a great time. Great. We love it there. So, <laughs> during the rest of the year, the population of Munich is around 1.5 million people, and that's rounding up. During Oktoberfest, Munich's population soars to a staggering 6 million people. What was it? Say what it was before? It was 1.5 million to 6 <gasps> million. It oh more than God. triples. It is That's unbelievable. Crazy. It is unbelievable. I went to Munich in the spring, which is not when Oktoberfest is, although they do have a spring fest. But they were like, it is like you cannot move in Munich during Oktoberfest. <laughs> it's crazy. In 2013, Oktoberfest served 7.7 million liters of beer. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just some fun statistics to get you started. This is how Oktoberfest started. On October 12, 1810, the future Bavarian King Ludwig I married Princess Therese of Saxe-Hildburghausen. I don't know German, so this is going to be fun for, for everybody involved. The citizens of Munich, every week I'm like, well, I'm picking a language I don't know how to speak. Um, the citizens of Munich were invited to attend a festival honoring the wedding in the fields around the city gates. These fields for this occasion were named Teresi Weisse, which means Teresa's Meadow, in honor of the crown princess. The fields to this day still have this name that is still where Oktoberfest is celebrated. 
Um, and this is still where the majority of the celebration takes place. This is where all the tents pop up. It's a really big field. Um, and it's still called Teresa, Teresa Visa, Teresa Visa. But locals will call this area Visen. During the first festival, 15th century horse races were held on October 18th, popularly believed to have been proposed by a man named Andreas Michael Delarmi, who was a major in the National Guard of Bavaria. And it is very funny that a man whose last name was Delarmi was a major <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the army. <laughs> it is unknown who first proposed the festival at large or suggested its re recurrence in 1811, but these initial events launched what is now the annual Oktoberfest. The fairground chosen mm -hmm. features Sen Sendlinger Hill, which is used as a grandstand for 40,000 horse race spectators. The horse race doesn't happen anymore, but that's it did for a very, very long time, and that's where it happened and why this location was chosen for Oktoberfest. Tasting mm -hmm. of what at the times were called traders, T-R-A-T-E-U-R-S, and other alcohol took place on the hill above the stands. Before right. the first race, so it was normally, it was like the big event in the olden days was the horse race. Before the first race, a performance was held in homage of the bridegroom and royal family. This performance featured 16 pairs of children dressed in Spock costumes and costumes representing the nine Bavarian townships. At the second Oktoberfest, yeah, super hungry. Well, games. the other way around, Hunger Games is very Bavarian. I don't know why the like jousting scene in Hunger Games haunts me, but I think about it all of the time. The jousting scene. Yeah, there's a joust in Hunger Games, and I can picture Marjorie. Someone gets stabbed in the shoulder. I think Loras does, but he survives. Oh, in Game of Thrones, you mean? Yes. What did I say? Hunger Games. Oh, no. <laughs> Game of Thrones. I was like, I do not remember that scene. <laughs> Hunger Games would be better if they jousted. I'm going to say it. Okay, I'll see what no one else will say. <laughs> At the second Oktoberfest, a show was added to provoke to promote Bavarian agriculture. Don't know what they did. Maybe they dressed as corn and danced. Not really sure. Um, the festival <laughs> was canceled in 1813 because of the Napoleonic Wars. Womp womp. In 1818, carnival booths ap first appeared, and guests could win silver, porcelain, and other jewelry. And this is when it started getting sort of carnival aspects to it, which are still thriving today. In 1819, city clerks assumed responsibility for the festival and it was decided that Oktoberfest would become an annual event. At this point, they'd had it every year for nine years, minus one, minus 1813. So they were like, let's just, let's just make it official. We're going to do this all the time. Whereas before they were like, we'll do it again next year. That sounds great. Now they were like, nope, we're going to do this all the time. In 1832, Oktoberfest invited a Greek delegation to host a sort of Olympic Games, which later inspired the Zappos Olympics, and then that inspired the modern Olympics. So Oktoberfest is, like, a little bit responsible for the modern Olympics, which is cool. October I miss the Olympics. Uh, me too. We're not having it this summer. Well, summer's already over, but it would have already happened. I already missed the window. No, listen, I said it was a bummer, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the mid-19th century, Oktoberfest um, became longer, and the date was moved earlier because the days are longer and warmer at the end of September, so it was no longer held in mid-October. It would end in October. Since 1850, Oktoberfest has an annual parade celebrating Prince Ludwig, Therese, and Bavaria. 8,000 people, almost entirely from Bavaria, dress in traditional costumes and walk through the center of Munich to the fairgrounds. Um, the Statue of Bavaria, which presides over the festival grounds, was also erected in 1850. The statue represents a worldly Bavarian patron. It's not a statue of a specific person. It's just a statue of someone who looks like they could be from Bavaria, which is, like, kind of hilarious. Like, can you imagine if we did a, a statue <laughs> of a generic American? Like, what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think it's very funny. But it's a very, it's a much smaller community. Like, I could probably get, show you a statue of a New Englander, you know? You know what they look dare like. you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> Three years later, a colonnade was added behind the statue, which is known as the Rooms, Rooms Hall. Sure. 
it's like it's it's a <laughs> it's a big U shape that's a bunch of columns and it looks really cool. Okay. In 1854, the festival had to be canceled because 3,000 residents of Munich, including the Queen Consort, died during a cholera epidemic. Don't we know what that's like? (laughs) Yikes. It was canceled again in 1866 and 1870 because of the Austro-Prussian War and the Franco-Prussian War, respectively. A second cholera outbreak in 1873 caused the cancellation of the festival once again. In 1880, the festival received electricity for the first time to 400 booths and tents. The first, mm-hmm. the first Bratwurst was sold at Oktoberfest in 1881, and the first beer in a glass mug was served in 1892. Ooh, the party's getting started. It is. The we got beer electricity, halls. we got beer. We got beer in glass mugs. They had beer, but now they were beer in glass mugs, <gasps> which are like, the steins are now like, a staple, you know. Mm-hmm. Beer halls also did not appear until the end of the 19th century because festival organizers wanted more space for more guests. And this is now what Oktoberfest is really known for, their big, like, pop-up beer halls. In 1887, the first parade of Oktoberfest staff and breweries took place. This event, which still takes place today and really starts Oktoberfest, showcases horse teams of the different breweries and bands that play in the festival tents. And this always takes place on the first Saturday of Oktoberfest, and it's a really big deal. In 1910, on the 100th anniversary of Oktoberfest, 120 liters of beer were consumed and only took another 100 years to get to 7.7 million. So there's that. (laughs) Really escalates there. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Three years later, in 1913, the Soul was founded. I think I'm saying that right. At the time, it was the largest pavilion ever built and it became the centerpiece of Oktoberfest so it's one of the beer halls it can hold 12,000 people and just this year I think this is interesting the Haida family um, who has been in the pavilion for 83 years announced its retirement from the pavilion they said that they're not going to come back um, and this family owns Polaner and Hacker Shore which is like two of the Oktoberfest beers and they after 83 years they were like no we're retiring which is like a really big deal so mm, why did, did they give a reason they just said that like they they i think the owners of it are old and so mm-hmm. i think polaner and hacker shore will still be there but i think they're gonna sell the company or oh, okay. do something of the like because they're just like we've been doing this for a while we're starting yeah. to move on um the the guy's old now the guy who's been doing mm-hmm. it is like also in his 80s now. He inherited it from his grandfather, which is, like, really interesting. So mm. they're just retiring and moving on. Between the years of 1914 and 1924, Oktoberfest only occurred twice due to World War One and its aftermath. Unfortunately, and this is the sad part, the Nazis used Oktoberfest for propaganda in the 30s. Jews were forb- forbidden to work on the Weissen, which is the fairgrounds, in 1933. And then in 1935, Oktoberfest held a big parade to celebrate 125 years. It adopted the slogan, Proud City, Cheerful Country, to show the overcoming of differences between social classes. And this celebration or earned the Nazi regime some popularity. If you didn't know, Hitler did rise to power in Munich, and it was for a long time the headquarters of the Nazi party before their ultimate move to Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um this is something that, like, I was really struck by how open the Bavarians were about this and how, like, they are very open and talking about it as part of their history. But, like, this is an example I always use when I talk to people about Confederate statues. Like, you will find nothing physically still existence that shows that they were there. Like, there are mm-hmm. no statues. It's considered illegal to have anything, like, displaying Nazi symbols, anything like that. There are, like, little remnants that they can't get rid of. Like, like there are literally still, like, chips in the brick where, like, someone was shot, and that mm-hmm. still exists, and you can go and see those things. Um, and they're very, like, yes, this happened here. Yes, it was terrible. Um, this is, like, the repercussions it had on the people of Munich. Like, this, they're very open about it, but you wouldn't know from looking at it. Mm-hmm. Unlike America, where you go to any southern town and it's very clear through the statues that exist there that a civil war happened. Mm-hmm. But I digress. Um, in 1938, after Hitler had annexed Austria and won the Sudetenland via the Munich Agreement, Sudetenland was um, a portion of Czechoslovakia. Oktoberfest was renamed to the Greater German Folk Festival. 
It obviously had a German name, but I'm not going to try to say it. And as a showing of strength, the Nazi regime transported people from Sudetenland to the Weissen by the, like, to show, you know, camaraderie with these people that they had just annexed. And being like, see, you're part of our Oktoberfest, too. Mm -hmm. There was no Oktoberfest between 1939 and 1948. Um, 1939, 1945, it was because of World War II. And in 1946, 47 to 48, Mm -hmm. Munich did celebrate an autumn fest, but they were not permitted to sell the traditional Oktoberfest beer. And then in 1950, Oktoberfest opened with a new traditional procedure. Like, we're like, we're going to start over <laughs> wipe the slate clean at noon a 12 gun salute is now followed by the tapping of the first keg of oktoberfest beer by the mayor of munich with the proclamation of ozapsch ist which means it's tapped in austro-bavarian <laughs> the you are not allowed to drink at oktoberfest until the mayor does there's an <laughs> ongoing bet on how many taps it will take the record being only the record for least being two and the record for most being 19 before the beer flows um and then the mayor will then give the first liter of beer to the minister president of the state of bavaria and then you everybody else is allowed to drink which is a nice tradition since the 1970s, the local German gay organizations have organized gay days at Oktoberfest, which since the 21st century always are in the Brussel tent, which is like the most famous one on the first Sunday. So that's like since the 70s has been just a part of the Oktoberfest proceedings. Like it's pride, but in Oktoberfest. I which love is that. Lovely. In 1980, this is also sad, a pipe bomb was set off in a trash can near the main entrance on September 26th around 1019 p.m. 13 people were killed and over 225 were injured, 68 seriously, which makes this the second deadliest terrorist attack in German history, preceded by the Munich massacre that occurred at the 1972 Summer Olympics, which was very, very sad. Um, And it was another example of, like, that kind of accelerated German pride in Oktoberfest because they, it was like the Boston strong thing, you know, mm-hmm. we're like, we're going to come back bigger and better than ever, which they did. In this attack, a right wing extremist man, Gundolf Kohler was implicated in the attack. Um, he was killed in the explosion, but there's actually debate over whether or not he worked alone or if like he was the perpetrator that has mm-hmm. never been solved. Interestingly enough today, In our modern age, Oktoberfest looks very different from the original festival. In 2005, this this might be my favorite fact, the concept of quiet Oktoberfest was developed. (laughs) Until 6 p.m., the orchestras in the tents may only play quiet, traditional folk German music. (laughs) Literally for the elderly Germans who are just trying to appreciate their culture. And then after 6 p.m., pop and electric music can be played. Apparently, before this, like in the 90s and early 2000s, um, the popular music, the playing of popular music had led to like some violence. I couldn't get a lot of information about this, but what I'm assuming is that like the party mentality of like, it's three weeks of constant party and we play all this exciting music, which just like revved people up. <laughs> like it was just like a constant like rave. And so, and also you're drinking endlessly And so the organizers found that if they, like, limited the volume and the music selection during the day and allowed people time to, like, chill out, that, like, really helped that problem. So now quiet Oktoberfest. They have quiet hours, essentially. (laughs) From 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Also, Oktoberfest is a family event. Like, they have full carnivals. There's lots of stuff for kids to do. So it doesn't surprise me that they were trying to create a more, like, family-friendly environment during the day. Um, Mm -hmm. But that did make me laugh. Starting in 2008, a new Bavarian law was passed to ban smoking in all enclosed spaces open to the public. But because they had problems enforcing the anti-smoking law in the big tents at Oktoberfest, an exception was granted specifically to Oktoberfest, saying they could smoke there, but they couldn't sell the tobacco. Uh, Now, the sale of tobacco in the tents is legal, but it's, like, mutually not done by like agreement like they were like oh no that'd be wrong like there it's 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 yeah. legal. but if someone tried they'd be like what, what are you doing like it's not what we're doing. <laughs> um, Come on, man. um and now 
in early 2010, a referendum was held in Bavaria, and as a result, they reinstituted the original strict smoking ban of 2008, um, which means that beer will not be sold to anybody caught smoking in the tents. So it's, like, legal, but it's really strictly monitored, and it's, like, you can smoke or you can drink, but you can't do both. <laughs> so that's what smoking is like at October. That's such a clever, like, parental trick, like. Okay, I mean, you can smoke at Oktoberfest, but you can't do the one thing you came to Oktoberfest for, so. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, at Oktoberfest, the beer that is served has to conform to the Rheinheitsgebot, and it is always brewed within the city limits of Munich, um, and can only be served at the Munich Oktoberfest. So, oh. or not can only be served, but it's it's served throughout the year. But those are the only beers that can be served. The... Mm-hmm. Reinheitsgebot is a series of rules about what ingredients can be used in German beers. Um, beers meeting these criteria are designated Oktoberfest beer, although the name Oktoberfest beer also denotes two distinct beer styles, styles a traditional Mars and Lager um, and a paler Fest beer, which is the more common beer at Oktoberfest now. Because of all these restrictions, there are only six breweries that can produce Oktoberfest beer and again, they all have to be within the city limits of Munich. Um, so there's not a lot of competition at Oktoberfest. You know, it's like you have from 10 to 10 and you drink all the beer and it's going to taste pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Because it has all these strict rules. Mm-hmm. But again, it's very much a celebration of Munich and Bavaria. Yeah. Only their beer. And now I'm just going to get into some fun facts. My last favorite year, kind of facts. Yeah. Last year, Adidas released limited edition vomit-proof sneakers inspired <gasps> by Oktoberfest. Oh, they no. Said, they said Prost on the side, and they sold out, like, immediately. That's so gross. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess, useful, but it's gross yeah. that they had to make that. Right. During Oktoberfest, traditional visitors wear Bavarian hats called Tirolerhut. I'm dead. I'm sorry. <laughs> But you just gotta, you just gotta trust me. You um, know, you're doing your best. It's those fur hats that, like, stand up, and essentially, essentially the more tufts of goat hair on your hat, the wealthier you are considered to be. <laughs> so it's pretty classist, but that's fine. <laughs> it's Oktoberfest. One mug of Oktoberfest beer is equivalent to eight shots of schnapps. They are more alcoholic <gasps> than your average beer. So there's that. Schnapps don't have as much alcohol in it as you think. They're 6% alcohol, but that's still okay. a lot more than the average beer. That's my thing about beer is, like, I feel like the – it's, like, I don't know. It's not don't get strong enough? enough to justify the taste. Like, I'm, I'm just not a beer as much of a beer person as I am. This cider is 6.9%. This cider is more alcohol than an Oktoberfest beer. Whatever. <laughs> she says, takes a big sip. It's good. It's an apple cider donut cider. At Oktoberfest, around 600 to 800 people a year suffer from alcohol poisoning. There is an on-site Red Cross tent, and it is usually full. (laughs) There is a wine tent. Yay. Oh, that's where I'd be. There are more than 80 rides at the fair, so it's like a full carnival. Like, it's an amusement park at this point. I would not go on a ride if I'd been... Dr- I don't like rides Well, you have to general. remember that you go there with your children. Like, it's just... Like, it is designed to be a family affair. I didn't so, like rides as a kid, either. I wasn't if I'm a being person. Me neither. They all made me feel nauseous. Only 19% of visitors are not from Germany, which, like, that, like, really shows how important it is in Germany. And most of the Germans that visit are from Bavaria. Although the festival is free to enter, beer costs around $12. Pretty pricey. Um, Oktoberfest mm. generated 1.2 billion euros in profit in 2018. Big part of their economy. In 1896, Albert Einstein worked as an electrician at Oktoberfest. Mm. Cool guy. Remember they got light bulbs? Um... <laughs> Oktoberfest has its own post office, and they send around 130,000 postcards every year. Even though the Steins cost only about $16 on the online Oktoberfest shop, guests always try to steal them. 130,000 were confiscated from guests in 2010. 
Whoa! Yeah, everybody tries to steal them, and they they're very nice about it. They're like, no, 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 and they just kind of pick it up and take it back to the tent owner. <laughs> but people do always try to steal them. <laughs> That's fine. I've been there. I've been there. Um, <laughs> you know, just wanting something, wanting to steal it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> this one I found crazy. There is a twenty-year waiting list to open a food stand at the festival. <gasps> what? Yeah. <laughs> It is a hot ticket for food sellers, which is crazy. In the Hippodrome tent, Oktoberfest hosts mass the first Thursday of the festival every year. They have mass every year. So all the time going to tone. <laughs> and finally, this is my last fact, and I saved the best for last. In 2007... Oktoberfest banned socialite Paris Hilton from attending because she wore a traditional Bavarian dwindle <laughs> to promote a brand of canned wine. She literally went there, like, trying to be an influencer for wine, and the locals were so offended that they convinced <laughs> the organizers to ban her. So she's not allowed back at Oktoberfest ever again. And that's that on Oktoberfest. So if you're trying to avoid Paris Hilton, that's the place to go. Yes, because she's not allowed back there. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're very that welcome. That was a fun time. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned some fun stuff. I did. I did. Well. I brought the vibe up. Yeah. Good vibes only. Good vibes only. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us through the link in our show notes and or consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com and we'd love to put it on the show. Sarah. Yes, Jane. You know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? So, like, what's the deal with the Illuminati? And where yes! do they come from? And <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I've been waiting for a year and a half to answer this question. <laughs> Jane. Oh, my God. Don't say anything else. Don't say anything else. I'm going to tell you all about it, Jane. It's going to blow your mind. Okay blow your mind wow i can't wait i have a book on this i can read the book okay <laughs> so excited okay jane you know what i've been wondering what have you been wondering sibling? i want to know why and when haunted houses became a <gasps> uh my nightmare but okay well, i'm not-, not gonna make you go to one once you tell me about where they came from. Oh my god, it is! Well, you're not gonna go like... to any. You're just gonna read about them. It's like a place that bullies you. <laughs> yep, uh-huh. It bullies you. You're right. And you pay them money to bully you. I just watched a really scary movie about haunted houses. Would not recommend it for you, but if you're interested, anybody <laughs> listening, it's called Haunt. Not an ad, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> Okay, I'll look into why those silly things exist. Okay. That's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is, you know, what I've been wondering. <laughs>